Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and young alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're going to talk to Rich Horgan, founder of Cure Rare Disease, a nonprofit biotech company working to create individualized therapeutics using CRISPR technology to treat people impacted by rare diseases. We're honored to hear the story of how he started the company, what diseases they're working to cure, and what inspires Rich as an entrepreneur and a company founder. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. So welcome, Rich. We're so glad that you're here today. Thank you for having me, Kathy. I appreciate it. I always start with asking um, entrepreneurs to tell us a little bit about their company. So if you would give us just the 30-second elevator pitch about Cure Rare Disease, that'd be great. Sure. So Cure Disease is a nonprofit biotech based out of Boston, Massachusetts, and we are spearheading the development of personalized gene therapies for rare and ultra rare disease patients. And the mission is quite personal to me. I was I have a younger brother, uh, Terry, who has a rare disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And Terry, like many patients, have been left behind by traditional drug development mechanisms that don't focus on the on the individual patient. Um, if the disease is not very common. And so drug companies are very good at developing therapeutics for populations, but not so good at developing therapeutics for smaller populations or rare disease. Obviously this, you know, having a younger brother with a condition like this impacted your life. How did you, at what point did you decide, well, this is something I think is something I should focus on in my career. Um, Was it always something you thought about even from growing up or did it really happen when you were in school and you thought, well, I really do have some interest in this? So the idea for cure disease uh, came to me during my time in business school. Um, I've grown up with my brother being uh, four years younger than I for, for obviously most of my life. And so I've always wanted to do something to help Terry. Um, watching him and his disease progress over, over the years um, has been something that's been really painful to watch. And so with the opportunity to go to a, a great undergrad and a, and a great grad school, you know, I sort of looked at it as the perspective of, you know, we only get one shot. This disease continues to progress. Time is limited. You know, let's, let's just take a shot. Let's try to take the best shot we can. So I spent a lot of my time in business school networking with uh, researchers, clinicians, people just doing really interesting things in drug development to try to uncover a different path. Because what I learned initially was that drug development takes a very long time and it's very expensive. And so generally the, the anecdote that's quoted is 10 years and $2 billion. I had neither 10 years and certainly not $2 billion. And so we needed to reimagine the drug development process for the individual instead of the population. And in doing that, one of the individuals I met was a really amazing individual named Dr. Tim Yu at Boston Children's Hospital. And back in 2017, Tim was developing what would become the world's first personalized drug for a little girl with Batten's disease, which is like childhood ALS. And so while Batten's disease is not at all similar to Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the framework that Tim was using was really intriguing. And it was one that I would go to later apply to uh, our diseases that we focus on. Tim is not a DMD doc by training, a Duchenne doc by training. And so I, I formed my own team of really well-known and well-renowned researchers, clinicians, from across the United States, and also from across Canada, as well as we've since expanded into Europe as well. So the idea that we could introduce a novel framework of drug development to be able to treat even a patient with, you know, a disease that impacts just him or herself was something that was really intriguing to me. And what began with just Terry has since evolved into developing personalized gene therapies for many more patients. We now have 15 different uh, mutations 
When you began your company, obviously you're focused on the disease that your brother has, but um, there must be, I don't even know how many rare diseases like this that only impact one or two people. For sure. Yeah, it's a great question. So you're, you're right. The, we, we focus on Duchenne muscular dystrophy or DMD first because my younger brother has it and, and so do 15,000 other uh, boys and young men in the United States. So it is a pretty, uh, it is a devastating rare disease. The disease itself is characterized by progressive muscle weakness, ambulation, or the ability to walk is usually lost. As, as, the, as the young man or boy turns uh, 10 or 11. And then things continue to move downhill from there with impacts on pulmonary and cardiac function. And ultimately the disease is 100% fatal. And so right now DMD is a death sentence. And so what we're trying to do is intervene to, to harness the potential of CRISPR genome editing to combat the disease and ultimately stop the progression or even better reverse the progression. But ultimately what, what I'm trying to build is a framework and a system that will allow society to tackle virtually any rare genetic disease that can be treated um, with technologies that we have or will have in the future. Think of it as an ecosystem. At the core of the ecosystem is drug development. This framework that we can go first and develop a drug for an individual. We do this by first characterizing the individual's mutation. So what exactly do we have going on here in a genetic level? What's causing the mutation? And we do that through whole genome sequencing. Think 23andMe, but fancier. And then after the, the characterization is done, we also set up a cell line. So think of this as a patient in a dish. For muscle diseases, we take patient muscle and expand that out into a cell line. For neurodegenerative diseases such as SCA3, which is one we're working on, uh, we convert skin cells into neurons. So you, it's important to have that patient in a dish so that we can test candidate therapeutics that are then built in the patient cells prior to moving into anti-animal models. Once that wow. therapeutic development's been done, then we'll validate and optimize in the patient's cell line. If it works in the patient's cell line, we have higher degree of confidence that it will work in the individual. And then we move on to animal model testing so we can see in a system, not just a cell line, do we see efficacy? And also do we see toxicity, which is very important. Is it safe and does it work are the two questions we have to answer. We'll meet with the FDA sort of at the halfway point to get the FDA's feedback, the FDA being the Food and Drug Administration. And they'll give us a great perspective on work we've completed so far, in vitro work or work done in the patient's cell line as well as some of the in vivo or animal model work we've done, as well as also give their opinion and perspective on work we project doing. So this is how we make the drug, how we intend to dose the patient, what we look for in terms of efficacy, what we'll protect against in terms of safety. And it's a really great point to, to align with the, the regulator to make sure that what we're doing and what we intend to do uh, will be the most expeditious path into the clinic. And then we manufacture the human grade version of the drug. And then we conduct our final safety test before submitting what's called the IND. That's the investigational new drug application. Basically, it's the application to the FDA saying, hey, FDA, here's all the work we've done. Do we have your permission to dose this patient or these patients, depending on the trial at hand? And so that's broadly the, the system that we're creating. And, and as I mentioned, this framework is applicable to multiple diseases. We've since added on beyond DMD, um, another form of muscular dystrophy, limb girdle muscular dystrophy as well as a neurodegenerative disease, all in an effort to say, can we scale this model to more patients, but also more diseases? And how robust does the model hold up against other diseases? And so far it is holding up. Now the proof is ultimately in the proverbial human pudding, so to speak, which is what we'll see once we start dosing patients. Now my brother will be the first uh, to, he's our proof of concept patient to be dosed in 2022. And how we pick diseases is, is not so much a science as it is an art. It's the sort of basis of what we do. Our goal is to develop and be a safety net for diseases that are rare, genetic, and have no treatment. And so our expertise right now is heavily focused on neuromuscular diseases, muscular dystrophy, um, diseases of that nature, expanding to neurodegenerative diseases like SCA3, which I mentioned, for instance. And it's also a function of the families that reach out to us. This is very much so a grassroots organization, which I think we'll touch on uh, shortly. 
But this is not something that, you know, is backed by a large pharmaceutical company, for instance. It was very important to me to make sure that the incentives of this organization lined up with the incentives of the patient, because oftentimes in drug development, being a very complicated ecosystem, um, we lose a lot of those incentives and, and who ultimately pays the price is the patient. Um, generally, the, the patient is the one that, that suffers the most beyond the disease, um, but also just with the, the misaligned incentives. And so families that approach us, you know, I'm looking for people that can help build this organization with me. It is very much so a community. And mm-hmm. so families that understand that it's a, a type of model where their participation and support, both awareness as well as fundraising and, and all the above is, is really required. I like to think that we're in, you know, the first or second inning of personalized drug development, and there's a long way to go. I mentioned the, the sort of core of drug development and the ecosystem earlier. The other piece of that ecosystem is the, the payers and insurance companies who we in the future strive to get on board with this model. Um, currently, drug development is reimbursed through well-powered clinical trials, but with N of one or single patient drug development, that idea of well-powered clinical trials is something we'll never see potentially. And so how do we convince payers that, that supporting this and reimbursing effective therapeutics going toward value-based healthcare is the smart thing to do economically as well as societally. And so rare disease as a burden, and the statistic might be quite shocking, but there are over 7,000 rare diseases that affect over 10% of the United States population. And so what we see is this large, large heterogeneous population that isn't going to be able to be treated by a one-size-fits-all solution. What's even more startling is about 30% of rare disease patients are kids, uh, actually over 30% are kids. And so there's a, there's a high concentration of pediatric patients that are impacted. And unfortunately, 95% of rare diseases have no treatment or cure. And so it's this huge, huge opportunity, uh, I would say, since this is an entrepreneurial conversation, to be able to develop new systems that can treat these populations. Although small, in aggregate, they're actually quite large. Right. So there's so many pieces to put together, which is probably why combining your undergrad degree with a a business degree makes a lot of sense. You're going to need to like meet all these different kinds of people to put the pieces of this together. So that must be incredibly exciting to you that your brother's going to be starting treatment in the coming year, maybe exciting and also nerve wracking and everything else. Are there other patients kind of lined up behind him who have the same um, Duchenne's who are lined up to also be treated or will you wait for a while to see how it works with him or like how, how will you know how things are going? Yeah, so there's a couple questions there, I think. So the first is, yes, there is, there is, a, there is a, a sequence of mutations that we're targeting. Terry's we'll start with first as he's sort of our proof of concept patient. Um, after dosing Terry, we'll, we'll dose two other unique mutations um, in the following year. And then really try to scale up so we're dosing, you know, half a dozen different types of diseases on, on an annual basis as we continue to scale this. The, the second question around sort of what happens, what do you expect? Some of it's known and some of it's not known. So what happens is once we get the FDA go ahead, Terry will be admitted into the pediatric ICU since it's a pediatric disease um, where he'll stay for, for about four days if all goes well. And then what will happen is the therapeutic will be administered. It's think of it as an IV bag. Um, it'll be administered over the course of several hours and, and we'll be monitoring very heavily at first for safety making sure that we don't see any kidney or liver impacts, and then continuing to monitor ultimately over five years is how long the the patient is tracked. And the FDA is starting to coalesce around that timeline of wanting to track gene therapy, gene editing solutions for about five years. But the solution itself, the the technology itself is CRISPR-based, so it's genome editing. And ultimately what we're trying to do is upregulate the missing protein. And in the case of Duchenne, the protein is called dystrophin. And dystrophin itself acts as a shock absorber for your muscles. So when your heart beats, when you take a breath, your, your diaphragm works, 
um, your, your triceps and biceps, all these are muscles. About 40% of your mass is muscle. And so it's a significant part of your body and getting to all that muscle is a challenge. And so the CRISPR technology is delivered systemically throughout the body with a virus. It's called the adeno-associated virus or AAV. And that AAV is really good at getting into lots and lots of different cells, mm -hmm. muscle cells specifically. We'll be dosing at the University of Massachusetts and then follow up and um, care will be given there as well. For most of our patients, uh, it depends on the disease. Other diseases may be treated at other hospitals as we expand um, our collaboration. So you have doctors at the University of Massachusetts that you're working with closely. Is that where Terry's main doctor is or the person who has taken care of him so far? That's right. Yeah. So our clinical investigators, Dr. Brenda Wong, uh, she's one of the uh, world's most well-respected uh, muscular dystrophy doctors. She's actually been my brother's pediatric neurologist for over 16, 17 years now. Um, so there's a really good relationship and there's a really good story behind this whole mission as well that to have met her when I was just a kid, um, Terry was even more so a kid at the time. And to see the kind of full circle of her going from you know, Terry's doctor to now my colleague and still Terry's doctor to, to really trying to introduce this new model of drug development. She and the university and the administration there uh, with the support of Dean Terry Flaw have been really great. Was it really challenging to convince the FDA that there's this, you know, that this is a possibility of a way to move forward with these kind of cases? Or are they also looking to be more progressive in terms of the way they approve things and move, move forward with things? It's a good question. The, the, I, I have to tip my hat to the FDA. The FDA is made up of really hardworking individuals who have, have so much, so much more work that they have to be responsible for than they could feasibly do at the moment, just with the rise in gene therapies. But the FDA very much so is a, is a very good collaborator in this whole effort. Um, the FDA has been supportive in, in answering some of our key questions and helping us to think through some of the more challenging aspects of dosing. You know, how do you measure things like that? Very technical type of questions. But the FDA's and other organizations are looking at this model too, as saying, now that society has the ability to tackle some of these very challenging diseases with gene therapies, how do we go about that? And how do we separate what could be really attractive commercial programs for, for large populations uh, from N of ones or N of a few, you know, smaller populations where there may not be any commercial viability to the program, but still the patients need to get access to something that could save their life, right? The patient doesn't care how many people have his or her disease. They just care that they get a treatment. That's something that the FDA is thinking through is how do we set up the right framework and guidelines to allow for the continued growth of drug development in this manner without, without hindering it, but ultimately protecting patient safety, which is the FDA's utmost you know, mandate. And so you know, we've been in a, involved in a number of conversations with the FDA where we're helping to crystallize that thinking and that framework around real case scenarios, my brother's mm -hmm. being one and several other patients being another, to really take advantage of this, really this, I would say, paradigm shift with the ability to develop drugs on an individualized basis. So I think obviously funding is one of the challenges that you must face. And I think that you're in a, an interesting situation because obviously if you're selling a product, there's this you know idea you have something you're gonna gain. Um, and then another kind of more typical social entrepreneurship kind of thing would seek government funding or you know outside funding. So you must be also doing that same kind of like trying to seek funding. I know you mentioned the families that are gonna be involved or are involved with that piece of it. When you began this venture, like, how did you think of that piece of it? And, and you know, there's so many other pieces that are so much more important to you in terms of just making the, the actual medical piece of this work, but you've also got to figure out how you're going to pay for that. Yeah, a great, really great question. Oftentimes I get asked why a not-profit and why not a for-profit right away. You know, when I started this back in, you know, 2017, 2018, the idea of a venture capital model supporting or funding an organization that developed um, N equal one therapies at the time was very outlandish. Um, thinking has radically changed since then. And there is 
increasing interest, although there still needs to be pieces put in place around reimbursement, which we mentioned earlier, how to industrialize this and, and how do we how do we scale this with more venture money? Um, but for the time being, the not-for-profit model fits really well for a couple of reasons. We source funding from all sorts of different avenues. We have galas, golf, golf tournaments, corporate partnerships, as you can imagine, is an increasing um, side of things where we want to start to roll out programs like adopt a family, right? If this is a company who's headquartered in Texas, we've got patients in Texas. And so that company really gets an intimate relationship with the family and, and vice versa, where they know the family story. They, they watch the development over the two to three year timeline that it takes to develop and, and get approval to inject this drug. And so, you know, we're trying to roll out novel programs to, to continue to fundraise. We're involved in esports and streaming. So if you think, uh, you know, basically people playing video games on Twitch who will run charity streams for us, that's been really effective. And it's really, really resonates with our patient population as well, uh, because a lot of rare disease patients are heavily involved in streaming and gaming. It's a nice, very on-brand effort, I would say, in, in the esports space. Ultimately, sustainability, though, comes from really two main functions. Uh, the first is reimbursement, which I mentioned earlier, you know, convincing right. insurance companies that it makes economic sense. That's how they operate to reimburse customized therapeutics. The individual cost, as well as the cost to insurance is really quite high. And so the earlier we can intervene in treating the disease, the more the, the manifestation that we can delay or eliminate altogether, therefore saving the insurance company money and ultimately giving the patient the, the best quality of life. So a nice lineup of, of incentives there. Again, the second piece of sustainability is what we do with the drugs after. Some of these are truly N equal one drugs, meaning it's only for one patient, but some of these are larger populations, not huge, not, not thousands, but some are dozens or, or low hundreds. And so, you know, our organization is really good at lean drug development, getting drugs that are safe and efficacious into a very small group of patients. After that, the intention would be to uh, license or partner with a larger drug development organization so that they can treat the rest of the population, striving for, you know, accessibility and, and sort of uh, more democratized healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that we aren't particularly geared to do, but a pharmaceutical partner would, would be in a better position to do exactly that. So ultimately that's, you know, that's the vision over the next five years or so is to get these success cases and then work toward reimbursement and, and licensing and partnership so that we can spread them to, to other patients who, who need them, who they'd be amenable to. Talk a bit about your Cornell experience. Were you in the Dyson School, or maybe it wasn't the Dyson School at that point, but um, applied economics and management. When you talk about, though, the science piece of this business, you clearly know a vast amount of information about disease and especially the disease that's affecting your brother. Did you just learn all that on your own? When you were an undergrad, did you already think, I want to have my own company or organization someday? Or did you come to Cornell thinking, you know, I might just go to work for Google or something? Or did you know, you know, already that you wanted to do this? Kind of yeah, thing? great, great question. So um, I think one of the biggest takeaways from undergrad and grad school was the ability to ask questions and ask the right questions. I don't think that any one individual is capable of sort of building an organization on, on by his or herself. And so what I sort of saw my job and what, what Cornell helped to prepare me for was asking the right questions and connecting and inter sort of weaving the right people. When you put a lot of the right smart people in the room, um, you know, you can get a lot done. And by asking the questions that sort of lead to additional conversation and unlock concepts and, and discussion points that were previously not you know, sort of on the table, that's really where we see a lot of, a lot of good, good progress. Trying to avoid groupthink um, is also something. Uh, we, we find that the interdisciplinary nature of, of this organization is something where we're able to get a diverse array of perspectives, um, whether that's sort of the academic's perspective or the clinician's perspective or the regulator's perspective. All these perspectives are really important to build into the overall drug because drug development is really hard. 
it's really, really challenging. And so taking advantage of those perspectives is something that I, I see it as my responsibility to do. And also to, to, to share the mission. I think the average person doesn't quite know yet that it is possible to develop a drug based even just on one person's genetic mutation. And so raising awareness, raising funds, as I mentioned before, and, and driving the group forward are really the three buckets that I see my job as. Now, going to Cornell, I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial because I, I, my mom and dad own a you know, small business. And so that's kind of been in my blood um, growing up. And so I just didn't know exactly what that was or when. And so by the time I got to business school, I'd worked a few years at a tech company called Corning. And I knew the large corporate structure was interesting and you could get a lot done with it. And it was easier to raise capital through. But to, to sort of take new moonshot ideas, it was more challenging in a, a corporate environment just because of the hierarchy. Right. When I want to, when I mm -hmm. want to execute an SOW or start a new partnership, you know, there's not a lot of sort of like bureaucracy in the way we can move nimbly is what I'm saying. And right. so nimble right. movement was really important, especially in an organization like this, where the science is changing quickly. And we need to make sure that we're, we're accounting for those changes and, and also have being able to incorporate more perspectives. I think we put less focus currently right now on, you know, protecting trade secrets and, and um, things like that, because what we want to do is share the lessons we've learned broadly with the community and the drug development world. So others, you know, can learn from those experiences. Were there times when you were working at Corning that you thought, I definitely want to work for myself or have my own company, but I'm not really sure what it will be. It must've been like a frustrating thing for you and your family the entire time that you're growing up with your brother. Like, when did you decide this is, this is the thing I should be working on? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's an evolving question. Um, sort of the idea of wanting to do something is very different from the crystallized idea of what you're going to do is even more different from actually executing on that idea. And so that evolution kind of came from toward the end of Cornell through my job between uh, business school and undergrad, and then ultimately coalesced in, in the beginning, my first, my first year of business school, where um, there was a lot of focus on, you know, how, you know, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it's, you know, it, you know, you only get one life to live. And so how do you make the most of it? And so I was like, okay, well, the tools are here to do this. The people are certainly here to do this. I've spent, you know, the better half of a year now talking to tons of different researchers and clinicians. Let's just take the dive, you know, if, well, I don't know how to say this quite the right way, but coming from and having the privilege and opportunity to go to good schools creates a really nice, nice net. Now I'm not inherently wealthy. My family's not inherently wealthy. We're very just much so average, average people. But the idea that having a good education can allow you to pivot if something fails um, was something that was about as secured you're going to get in launching a new venture, I think. And it was mm -hmm. pretty much more than you could ask for. Not sort of haphazardly, let's just take the shot, but it was more so, what do I have to lose? It feels like the next question is, you know, do you have a personal mission statement? And it feels like your organization is really all about a mission statement, but do you have one that you think of for yourself that you would say is your own personal mission statement? Yeah, it's a good question. Sometimes it's hard to disambiguate the organization for myself, I think. I'm sure like many other founders kind of face this issue, but, but for me, what I want to leave in this world is a robust mechanism that even a family who is diagnosed with a disease that doesn't even have a name can seek out researchers and have an ecosystem available to them where they can rapidly build, de-risk, and eventually administer a, a life-saving drug to their loved one and not have to mortgage their house for that. And that's really where the reimbursement piece comes in. And the technology is already there to do this for the most part. It's just about putting the pieces together. And so right now we're kind of going through the forest. We, we have to pave the road through the forest to make sure that others who come afterwards um, have an easier challenge to, to do this and help their right. loved ones. 
you mentioned several people that, you know, families that you've worked with so far. Are there stories that you keep in mind every day when you wake up like, okay, I mean, obviously your brother, because that's the biggest one, but are there other people whose stories you think, oh my goodness, this is so important? I would say the blessing uh, and also challenge of this job is that you come to know the families and the kids and the stories so well, they're, they're your own family. You know, it's, it's Terry is very important to me, but so too are our other patients, Max and Fritz and, and Ned and, and, and so many other stories and lives that have become involved with this organization and have really, really sort of championed this fight who, who I would love nothing more to see than to live happy, healthy lives. And from a scientific perspective, boring lives. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how else to kind of say it. You know, you become very close right. to the people who help to build this. I'm especially grateful for the people who have joined early, sort of when it was just a nebulous idea to people who are who are joining now, um, who get it. You know, I think this organization is not for everyone. This organization is really for the entrepreneurial type of people who understand what it means to build and grow something novel. And they find us, you know, they continue to, to find us. And, and sometimes they're, they're very happenstance meetings. And, and other times it's like, wow, some, the stars really aligned here to, to have this outcome. So the families, are, the families are the reason why we're here. It must give you a hope on the days when you maybe got a phone call from someone saying, you know, what are you doing? You're crazy. Um, or, you know, this isn't going to work. You know, then you have these people that are still in your mind that you're thinking of. You know, there are always haters. Um, there are, I, I'm fortunate that we haven't really run into a lot of sort of just negative people. I think um, anytime you build anything new, there's going to be people that are like, well, that doesn't make sense. Or like, this is never going it, to, it, it's just the nature of, of innovation, I think, is, you know, you have the more innovative people combined with the more pragmatics, not quite the right word, because I think of myself as a pragmatist as well, but sort of people who, who kind of don't see the vision. And maybe it works and maybe it doesn't work, but the, but the, the path to effective treatments is paved with things that work and don't work. Right, exactly. You've got to try. So talk about some of the best advice you've ever gotten. I'd love to know that. And maybe if you have any, the worst advice that you've ever gotten that hopefully you did not follow. Yeah, I would say um, the best advice is it's all about the people. Uh, a mentor of mine who's a, a biotech exec early on said that the science is what it is, but it's all about the people you surround yourself with. And I, I could not agree with that more. The biggest challenge of this job is not always the science, it's often the people and getting the right people in the right places at the right time um, to do things that are gonna move the needle. And I would say that that I would spend a good chunk of my time on people-related things. Bad advice, ah, tough, tough to tell right off the bat. I mean, I think pointing back to the naysayers of, well, this is never going to work. This is impossible. It is possible. I mean, that's as clear as day now. It's, you know, two years ago, maybe it was a little less clear, but now it's very clear that this mechanism and this path to drug development is, is a real one. Mm -hmm. um, is it perfect yet? No, no, the road still needs paving. Um, we need to industrialize it eventually, and we need to get payers on board to make it sustainable. But that'll come. That'll come in time as we see more success cases. And the success cases are coming. You know, it, the development of gene therapy is in its early days, but it's this is sort of the hockey stick moment where we're seeing that huge inflection point mm -hmm. of gene therapies. And so it, it will come. Has the pandemic made things harder for you? Do you think that people are maybe even more cognizant of the need for healthcare advances because we're all dealing with the pandemic? Or how has that impacted your, your business? Yeah, the pandemic has just introduced a, a heightened level of uncertainty where, you know, for instance, if we said sitting in December, okay, we're going to have a golf event in June or a gala in April, 
like there was no question of whether that would happen, that would not happen because of some sort of external pressure. Now it's introduced, especially as we move into the third year fighting the pandemic, what's been introduced is just a significant degree of uncertainty and it hampers long-term planning, mostly related to fundraising. You know, holding in-person events has become a challenge and it sort of waxes and wanes in challenge. You know, at some points in the year, it was like, okay, what pandemic? And so long-term planning is much harder now. Also the ability to find good team members is a challenge. I think just with the shifting dynamics of the workplace, we're a fully remote company to begin with and we're before the pandemic. So it's a bit more natural, but as the team grows, it, it is increasingly challenging to manage a larger team all virtually. There is value to having that sort of that what a water cooler moment, I mm-hmm. think is the right way to say it. Um, and it's a qualitative value, but it's a real value nonetheless. And I would say the third thing is sort of just the overall, we, you know, we mentioned uncertainty, we mentioned sort of the, the people management side of things, but also I think broadly in society, and this is not unique to us, it feels as though there's a different sentiment, at least in the United States, people are frustrated. I think people are frustrated and, and scared at the uncertainty that this entire pandemic has sown and continued to sow. And that's just a macro challenge that I think most companies are dealing with, especially retail facing companies where, you know, the general public is, is challenged right now. Um, People are hurting right now, despite what the economic numbers may say. And that's a challenge for all of us. When you mentioned people and having, you know, surrounding yourself with people that, um, and finding people for your team, you are the leader of the team, but how many like close people do you have on your team that are right there beside you? Or are you really, you know, kind of moving this thing forward by yourself with like just, you know, a bunch of advisors? Or how do you, how did you structure your organization? I lead the team on the R&D side and the non-R&D side, but I'm so closely embedded with with our researchers, with our clinicians, with our translational experts, that it's really more of a, a group conversation. Like, yes, I'm ultimately responsible for pulling the trigger on a production lot or, you know, signing a, an SOW and, and, and all that jazz. But it's very much so a, a dynamic conversation where it's getting everybody's perspective and ba- making the best informed choice as possible with the information that we have right now. And I think that is a dynamic of, of sort of the undergrad experience and the grad school experiences. Y- you have to make decisions with imperfect information. And sometimes they're good decisions and sometimes they're not good decisions. And the important thing is to learn from the not good decisions um, so that you can f- uh, basically feed those back into the decision-making process in the future. And so it is scary making decisions that are not fully informed, but that is the nature of drug development. Yeah, that's the nature of most business, I think, is that imperfect information is oftentimes the best we have. And having the ability to ask the right questions to the point where we've got as much information as we're going to feasibly get and avoiding analysis paralysis, because that's a very easy thing to fall into, is important. But the, the R&D decisions are driven by conversations with the team, whether that's clinical, whether that's uh, research, and as well as the development uh, on the non-R&D side you know, this is, this is conversations with board members. Hey, what about this? Do you know this company? Uh, you know, how can, how can we do something here? Uh, January is a quiet month. How can we boost revenues? And so it, I think it circles back to, to asking the right questions and finding the right people. And how many people are on your team at the present moment? Uh, I've got one, two, three, about seven uh, employees on the non-R&D side. And then on the research side, we work with well over 15 different different researchers and clinicians, um, right. US, Canada, and Europe primarily. So let's move on to a little bit about you as a person and what makes you tick as an entrepreneur and what, um, what things you have found to be helpful that might be helpful for other people. So talk about your routine. Like what do you do first thing in the morning and what helps you to get your day organized? Uh, yeah. So first thing I do is I walk my dogs. <laughs> um, it's it's uh, generally, you know, get the coffee, walk the dogs kind of thing. 
Um, I do like routine. It's different every day, depending on what the day is. And, and I think for some, that's a little unsettling. It keeps it interesting. Um, there are very few days where I'm like, wow, I'm bored. I can't really remember a day like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's, that's kind of the positive side of the job is it's, it's a different challenge. It's different things that pop up. Sometimes you just don't expect where your day starts is where it ends um, at all. Sometimes for the good, sometimes not for the good, but it's, it's frequent communication, especially in a virtual environment with, with the team, checking in with people, following up on things, you know, persistence is key. I think in entrepreneurship is you, you gotta, if you believe in the idea, you gotta stick with it, whether that's, you know, trying to, trying to forge a new partnership or roll out a new fundraising mechanism, persistence really wins most of the day there. And we'll have, you know, we have our, our weekly or bi-weekly check-ins with different research teams. Research is not like what you see in the movies where it's like, there's an experiment and all of a sudden like you've got the cure and that's, it's, it's not like that. What it is like is like continued experiments. Okay. We've developed this construct. We're going to test this construct and several others in a cell line. That'll take a couple of weeks, come back. Okay. What are the results? Did we get good results? Oftentimes the answers are not black and white. They're often in the gray and then interpreting the gray. And so it's, it's a lot of back and forth and a lot of, a lot of strategy development around, around R and D. It's what experiments can we run that are the most lean, the most sort of telling experiments? Yeah, no, that answers the question. And you have to lean on your researchers to know what experiments to run that are the most telling, right? So uh, you're kind of like just trusting that they know what they're doing. To some degree. It's also, you know, that my job is also to act as a sponge. So having conversations with different, a lot of different people, even beyond our, you know, our 15 or so researchers, it's okay. Well, I heard about this article, you know, I, I read this publication and they said X, Y, Z, you know, how, how do we kind of bake that into our thinking? And again, it's asking the question to, to kind of uh, catalyze good conversation because no one researcher has the answer there, you know, very rarely is there like the perfect experiment. A lot of times it's driven by, okay, the FDA's perspective is this, we need to test for this, this, and this, how do we design this in the most time efficient fashion? And then it's, it's sort of negotiating the experiment. It's like, okay, well, the perfect experiment is a hundred mice. Well, with, right. to breed up hundred mice, you know, we've only got 70, what can we, what's the best we can do with 70, those types of negotiations where it's doing the best we can with what we have at the time. And that's mm -hmm. drug development as a whole, whether it's a large company or small company, it's each group right. will prioritize different things in different ways. And so how do we kind of optimize the system in that way while still right. moving quickly? And when you started, did you think like, oh, I think that I, in three years, I can be dosing my brother with some kind of a, you know, drug that's going to really help him. I mean, that seems really quick. It does feel quick. I mean, not after the, I guess the pandemic vaccine came quick too, but I think before that, no one would have ever thought that three years would have, you know, been. You know, it feels quick and slow at the same time. It's been a long three years. And so I think, you know, by the time we dosed Terry, it'll be about three, three and a half years altogether. And so at the beginning, we didn't know, we didn't know what the end goal, we knew what we wanted, but we didn't know how to get there. And so it was sort of like the analogy of building the plane as you're flying it was very much so true here. It's like, okay, well, let's characterize the mutation first. Now it's very well built out the framework, but at the time it was like, okay, well, we need a muscle biopsy. Let's go get some muscle. Let's do whole genome sequencing. Let's kind of identify what's going on here and what's not going on here. And then it's okay. Well, what could we use to try to fix this? And then it's like, okay, experiment, 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 experiment. And, and a big chunk of entrepreneurship, I think is luck. Um, there are some times when you just get lucky you know, the experiment goes right, the deal goes through, the random conversation that you didn't think anything of or was kind of dreading the meeting turns into something hugely beneficial. There are these moments of luck that I think are totally unquantifiable, but I think have radically shifted, you know, huge companies, you know, Google didn't start as a multi-billion dollar organization. Um, and so sometimes it's, it's the right people, the right time, the right place, but also sometimes it's a function of luck. Okay, so let's get back to a little bit more about you and your the tools that you use. So if you had 15 minutes of free time during the day, what would you do? 
I feel like the day goes by so fast most of the time. I, I like to just kind of like like not think for a few minutes. You know what I like uh, the 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 calm app. I think that's really cool. You know where you can just like de-stress for a minute and kind of like let your brain just settle because it feels like it's always like going so fast and so furious that it's like oh man like I'm like mentally like burning out my brain. And so it's like, okay, just take a minute to take a deep breath, pet the dogs, that kind of thing where it's like just relaxing for a minute because it's, it's, it's a very like high stress and high energy environment, which is sure. good, but it's also like, you know, still human yeah. being on the other end. So that leads into like the, what tools do you use to make your life easier? So maybe the Calm app is one of those, but are there other digital or physical tools that you found that make things go well for you or really help you with, with organizing your business and your life? For, Forbes asked the same question. It was, it's Google Calendar. I, I, I'm telling you, Google Calendar, everything's on my calendar. It's just, as long as it's on my calendar, I'll show up for it. I'll be there. I'll be ready for it. It's easy to forget things when there's a lot going on. I think any sort of entrepreneur of whatever sort of status you are at um, has probably run into this. And so it's the, the sort of the, okay, how do I plan out my day and how do I organize my day in a way where I'm not going to feel constantly rushed to something under pressure to being late? Those type of negative energies are, are not productive. And also it's about simplifying. I think simplifying, you know, I know when I was, when I was younger, I, I never understood why Steve Jobs always wore the same like black turtleneck every day. Now I totally get it. I'm like, I throw on the same, not the same V-neck, but you know, the, the same type of t-shirt, you know, I, I, I have a drawer, the same, 10 different colors. And it's like, okay, here's one, here's one. It's little things like that, that at least help simplify the mind space because it gets, at least for me, I'm, not the smartest guy in the world, I'm sure. But, you know, for me, it's very much so about how do I simplify what's going on in the mind so that you can really focus and, and think. I think sort of leaving that capacity to have that like creative thinking, not scheduled like, yeah, I'm going to think from five to six o'clock at night. You know, you're kind of like zoned out and it's all an idea, an idea hits you. And like, mm -hmm. that's, that's hard to plan for. But I think in some cases you have to kind of just like plan for the venue and like plan for the space. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, you know, Clearing the mind space is really important, especially tying back to earlier in our conversation about the pandemic. The pandemic has added a whole sort of extra layer of stress that wasn't there before, right? Mm -hmm. Going outside, wearing your mask, uh, making sure you wash your hand. It, this level, this extra level of risk that's sort of associated now with everyday life takes up a lot of mind space. And so it's how, how do you simplify the other factors in life so that the factors you need to really focus on and be really good at, you can have the capacity to do that. So um, what is one thing that most people would be surprised to find out about you? Um, maybe I'm a Star Wars. I'm a very big Star Wars fan. If, 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 hopefully that's a good answer. <laughs> that is a good answer. Star Wars, you know, I'm I, a big, big Star Wars fan, big gaming kind of person um, in spare time. Gaming is a nice relaxing thing, I think. You know, all the way it's like, you know, visually it may seem like, whoa, it was really intense. It's like, you know, it, it's a different kind of thinking that lets your other part of your brain like relax. So collaborating with gaming companies then is like, is makes a lot of sense for you. You know, I, almost two years into the space and starting to build those relationships. But yeah, that, that's, that's a, absolutely the goal. I mean, rare disease is like 10% of the population. So gaming companies right. should absolutely be focused on the space. And right. that's a huge segment of the customer base. So talk about, I'm not sure that you have any spare time to read, but if you were having spare time to read, do you, what kind of books do you like to read or what books are you reading right now? Or maybe you don't read books, but you're reading articles about various things. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I love the science and technology articles. I think being, being good at anything, you need to kind of surround yourself with different diverse perspectives that are like not exactly what you're working on. And so, you know, one of my favorite books is Peter Thiel's Zero to One. I think the, the concept of taking something from nothing to something is so much harder than taking something from something more because you, there's nothing there to begin with. And so, you know, this organization was literally just drawn from scratch. 
And so like, I, I really appreciate the perspectives of um, those types of leaders and individuals who have motivated and sort of gone through the ropes of taking you know, something from nothing. Um, it's, it's quite challenging. So that, that's a good book I like to read, as well as types of publications more so on sort of the latest trends in technology and, and science and, and those types of aspects. Uh, it's quite interesting. You know, I think the average person doesn't understand quite, and understandably so, how much science is going on right now and, and really cutting edge stuff that even 10 years ago was like, this isn't even possible, but now it's, it's an exponential growth curve. And what I think our job to do as a society is that make sure those tools are, are advanced to a place that can help make society a better place, not just make a lot of money. It's societies at a kind of a challenging point right now where, where we face a lot of inequality. We face a lot of additional challenges that didn't or weren't as aware of 10 years ago that we need to deploy these tools for the, the right thing and not, not just profit seeking. And that's something I think universities, especially top universities like, like Cornell need to focus on and continue to focus on is how do we bake in the person and the people into the equation of business? It's, it's not just about how do we maximize ROI anymore? It's we need to do better than that. You're still a very young person, but so far, what do you consider your greatest success in life? I think cure disease is probably the, the, the pinnacle so far, you know, it's, it's very much so creating effective systems is the greatest way to bring change to, to society. And so developing a novel organization that's really harnessing something that wasn't believed to be possible five years ago is really cool. And I think it stands to offer a lot of benefit for, for families who will outlive me, that's for sure, but ultimately bring new tools and technologies to the forefront to be able to help people at the end of the day. That's very proud. And, and to see, you know, when you share research successes with families, even on a small scale, like, oh, your mouse model's complete, something like that. That's really powerful to see, to, to reawaken or exacerbate the hope that the family's feeling. Um, so much of this battle is, is hope focused and um, it's important to be pragmatic about hope, but those small successes really why the job is what it is. I think I'd kind of leave folks with, you know, this organization is really comprised of individuals who want to make the world a better place in terms of, of effective and safe therapeutics. And, and some of our best people have come through LinkedIn reach outs, you know, little things that you may think are inconsequential can have serious ripple effects down the road. And so I'd, I'd encourage folks to reach out to learn more. Um, we're only as great as our people are. And so while my goal is not to have the largest number of patients, um, my goal is to attract the best and brightest people who are hungry for innovating and, and hungry for a challenge that is on a global scale with 300 million people impacted by rare disease across the world, 300 million plus impacted by rare disease globally. This is one of society's greatest challenges. If folks want to reach out to learn more, invite them to go to the website, curarerdisease.org. Um, we're across social media under Cure Rare Disease as well individuals, okay. companies, the, the whole gambit, you know, it takes a village to, to make a difference. And this is no exception. Thanks so much, Rich, for visiting with us today at Startup Cornell and sharing your story. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit bship.cornell.edu.